there's more to this life than I thought. And James inspires me. The things he says have encouraged me. It's like there's a walk, there's a path, and it's leading to something more real than I've ever known before, and it's exciting. I get around James and I hear things that help me in my life, my work. This work he talks about has become my work. I am excited about the possibility that other people could be affected, other people could be inspired to work on themselves, to grow, to, to realize there's more to this life. Someone said that stealing is the only crime that there is. If you kill someone, basically, you've stolen their life, you've stolen their right to live. If you take someone's possession, that's obviously stealing. If we lie, we steal the truth from another person. So we lie to another person, we steal their right to know the truth. But what's worse is we steal the truth from ourselves as well. There may be no greater crime than stealing the truth. And so we're going to talk about grand theft this morning. The work calls the worst kind of lying, ascribing to ourselves what we do not possess. The amazing thing about this is we don't think we do that. First of all, we don't think that is lying. And secondly, we don't think we do that. Oh, I don't ascribe to myself things that I don't possess. I mean, I don't go around saying I have a big house that I don't have. I don't go around saying that's my car when that's not my car. I don't do those things. No, but we do ascribe to ourselves things that we do not possess. And this ascription effectively steals our connection with higher centers, preventing the development of real being, real I. See, if you can't connect with higher centers, you can't develop. Well, that doesn't mean that you can't make it to the coffin. That doesn't mean that they won't close the lid on your coffin when you die. That doesn't mean that they won't bury you or cremate you or whatever. You can live a full life without ever developing. In fact, if you look around you, you'll notice that that's what everyone is doing. Connie was telling me the other day that she said, well, did you hear that Madonna is like dating some guy that's, she is the same age as a, as a kid's grandmother? I said, no. And then she said something about Demi Moore and Ashton Kutcher. Is that who it is? I don't know most of these people, but Bruce Willis was with some young 20-some-year-old girl, foreign girl, and now they're all hooked up. Demi Moore and Bruce Willis used to be married and had three kids, and now they're both with younger people. And, and I said, how sad. You know, just how sad it is when people have the wherewithal to do whatever enters their imagination. It's really sad because we're all trying to do the same thing. We're all trying to fill this hole, this space inside of us that is there for our development, for our internal psychological development, for our essence to grow. That's what the space is. And that hunger, that yearning that we feel, we misinterpret because we're looking out at the world and we're thinking that the only way to fill that space that we can't really identify that space that essence is supposed to grow into, to fill. The only way we can see to fill that space is by getting what we want in the outer way. And if you have the wherewithal, if you have the means to get whatever you want, to go wherever you want, to do whatever you want, you are, in my opinion, one of the most unfortunate, tragic beings on the planet because your, op your chance of getting to what's real is blocked by the fact that you can buy what's artificial. And so maybe that's why Jesus said, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven, of course, is the kingdom of expanding. It's an eternal kingdom. He said the kingdom of heaven is within you. The kingdom of God is within you. The kingdom of heaven is an expanding consciousness. It's what your essence expands into, the kingdom of heaven. It's a continually expanding consciousness where you get more and more light, where you, your essential self grows, and you finally develop real being. And you are freed from this prison that we have enslaved ourselves in and to, unwittingly. 
by accepting what the world has given us by acquiring what the world has given us from our childhood. We acquire this false personality and it takes the place of our real being and we imagine that we are this false personality, this imaginary I, instead of the real being that we could be if we could get back to it, if we could re-know it, if we could recognize ourselves, if we could recognize ourselves, if we could re-know ourselves. We once did know somewhere along the line. And if we could re-know ourselves, we could begin to develop internally our essence, our real being, our real I. It's never easy to become conscious that something is our own fault. We were talking about this last night, I think, and I said, I, th- I think I said, it's like I said last week, it's never easy to realize that something is our own fault. And everybody just kind of looked at me and said, oh, well, maybe I didn't say that la- last week. Maybe I'm going to say that tomorrow. So I'm saying that now because I don't think I said it last week, but I am saying it now. It's never easy to become conscious that something is our own fault. Self-justification, which of course is a form of lying, think about it, steals the truth from us. Its payoff is the avoidance of useful suffering. What is useful suffering good for? Well, useful suffering is the only thing that changes being. So if you want to change your being, you want to change who you are from false personality to your real I, then you have some useful suffering to do. What does that mean? Well, it means it won't really be that pleasant. That's what suffering is. Suffering is rather unpleasant. We don't like it. The work talks of useful and useless suffering. But as I thought about it and as we talked about it, and I think Jess said the other day, there's really only one kind of suffering for us, and that's the one to be avoided. There is no useful suffering from our point of view, from our perspective. And that's why we need this work to give us a new perspective. See, the work ideas give us this totally new perspective. Well, what do you mean I'm not one? What do you mean I'm not awake? What are you talking about? That's a different perspective. Those ideas are different perspectives. It's an entirely different way of viewing ourselves. I'm not one, well, but I feel like I'm one. I, I, I have one name. Yes, you have one name to this person, but maybe another name to that person. So you can see that you're already two. Well, yes, but that's only to those people. Oh, so you don't really play that role when, when your son comes to you and says, Hey, Dad, you don't change the way you behave toward him like you do toward it. Of course you do. You play the role of Dad. You play the role of mom. You play the role of boss. You play the role of whatever. You play the role. And it comes easily, and you don't even know you're playing a role. You just think you're being yourself. The thing is that when yourself changes, you don't notice that. You don't think yourself's changed at all. You don't think anything's changed except other people. They've changed, but not you. It's like people get married, and then they get divorced, and it's like, well, why are you getting divorced? Well, he changed, or she changed, or I changed. Well, that's not grounds for divorce. That's just grounds for blinking. You blink your eyes, somebody changed. You blink your eyes, you changed. We change at the blink of an eye. We change eyes at the blink of an eye. So who knows who's up to bat next? We don't know. There's no batting order. It's whatever life demands of us. Life demands who's up to bat next by putting in a call. And then whatever eye is attached to what life is asking for, that eye is dragged to the home plate and that eye is given a bat. Okay, you swing. And we call that being ourselves. How absurd. Yeah, there's really only one kind of suffering, the kind to be avoided, from our perspective. Avoiding useful suffering, lying, that's what what lying is. Lying is avoiding useful suffering, damages or even kills essence, which can only grow through what is real, through what is true. Because essence is real, because essence is what is true. The only way that it can grow is through what is real, through what is true. So then what can grow through lies? Well, there's only one thing that can grow through lies. What is false? False personality, who we think we are, what we think we are, that can grow through lies. False personality lies all the time, and it grows through lies. So the truth about false personality is that it is a lie, but we don't see that. And it's a lie 
from which it is very difficult to separate. Even when you do see it, you don't get to separate from it just because you see it. You may be able to slide a piece of paper between you and it, if it's a very thin piece of paper, like tracing paper, but that doesn't mean you can really separate from it. You may be able to get a little bit of distance from it, but it doesn't last long. Every time we say I, we're lying. That's the way it is. Every time we say I, we're lying. Well, how can that be? Well, because the I that we think we are is imaginary. It's a lie. It's not really who we are. So when we say I, we're lying. This is grand theft. As I've said many times, the work is to make personality passive and essence active. The work is a system of ideas from sea influence. Discussed sea influence in the past, it's whatever you want to call it. If you'd like to say it's the ascended masters, fine, then call it that. If you want to say it's God and his angels, fine, you say that. If you want to say that it's Jesus and Buddha and Muhammad, fine, then you say that. I don't care what you say. It doesn't matter to me what you say. Because whatever it is you say, that's not it. Because you can't really define what it is because we don't know what it is. So when we define it, it's wrong. It would be just as easy to say, we're lying. We're talking about something that we don't know. We're ascribing something to ourselves that we don't really possess. What is that? The knowledge of what sea influence really is. We're ascribing that to ourselves when we define it. Can you see that? Good. I like it when you see what I'm talking about because sometimes it helps me to see it. (laughs) If the ideas of your thoughts are real ideas, your thinking will lead you somewhere. Well, doesn't our thinking always lead us somewhere? No. Most of your thinking leads you nowhere. It's circular. It just comes back around to you. Because we're so full of self-emotions, what we think about is ourselves. Anytime we think we're thinking about something out there, we're really only thinking about how it applies to us. So it's really just another way of thinking about ourselves. Because it's, let's face it, it's more interesting to think about ourselves than to think about anything else. Because that's the most important thing to us. The power that's latent in the idea, if your ideas are real, will help you. Maybe sometime last week I said, well, it was Wednesday night I talked about ideas. The ideas were the only thing that were real. That all this, all this other stuff, all this stuff around us, none of this is real. This is all perishable. But the idea of a chair, that's real. You can create a billion, a trillion, a hundred trillion, infinite number of chairs from the idea of a chair. And they'll be different. But the idea of a chair is the same. And so an idea is the power. The thing that the idea manifests, that's temporary. Because the idea is eternal. It can always produce another thing. If the idea is a real idea. If the idea is just some other thing, a concept, some other concept, that's a totally different matter. A man-made idea is not really an idea. It's more of a concept. We talked about that last week, didn't we? We talked about the idea of people being free or peace on earth. And Did we talk about that last week? Yes that there isn't any freedom. There isn't going to be any freedom. But when the work talks about freedom, it talks about a relative freedom. Yeah, we did talk about that. I talked about it and you listened. Well, obviously you didn't listen because you didn't even know we talked about it. The danger with lying is it makes wrong connections in us. See, people think, well, what's the problem? Nobody knows I lied. That's true. Nobody may know. But it made wrong connections in you. And the connections that we make in ourselves determine what we're going to do the next time. Those connections are all negative. That's what false personality is about. It's about making false connections. They're all negative. Why? Because all negative emotions lie and block the way to higher centers, which steals our birthright. I think it's in Genesis that uh, Esau says, behold, I'm about to die. So of what use then is the birthright to me? And Jacob said, first swear to me. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau, his brother, bread and lentil stew. And he ate and drank and rose and went on his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. 
Now, a lot of people think this is a story about two brothers, but of course it's not. It's a story about two sides of us, the side of us that despises essence and the side of us essence that will use false personality to develop itself. We look at Jacob, it's like, well, that's sneak. But you look at Esau and all he cared about was his belly. He didn't care about anything else. And so what was important, he was willing to give up so he could feed his belly. But Jacob, on the other hand, he thought what was important was the birthright. And he was willing to give up the food to get the birthright. It's very different, but it's a picture of us, our psychological side, our internal side, and our external side. We were just talking about the people in the world who have the wherewithal to go and get anything that they want and how that impoverishes them spiritually inside. And then you look at the people who have nothing, you know, who is the gospel preached to? The poor. What does that mean? Well, the people who don't have anything else. They don't have the wherewithal to go and fill themselves with the food of this world. And so they have an opportunity, whether they take it or not, they have an opportunity to develop internally. But the rich don't have that opportunity because the rich, and I'm not talking about people with a lot of money. I'm talking about people rich in themselves, people who have a lot of talent, people who have a lot of self. It's very difficult for those people to give up themselves, to give up their idea of themselves. They have ri they're rich in ideas of how wonderful they are. They're rich in ideas of how, what a good person they are. They're rich in ideas about how well they do and how much they benefit other people on the planet and all the good things they're doing. And that's what that story, the parable with the, of the rich young man who came to Jesus and said, you know, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And he said, well, obey the commandments. And he said, well, which ones? Well, that tells you right there, the guy's a wonky, you know, he's a little wonky. Which ones? Well, why would anyone ask that? Well, all of them, of course. But he asks which ones. So he says, well, love your neighbor and honor your father and your mother and, you know, whatever else he said. And, and he said, well, I've done all that already. See, he was rich in himself. He had a very high opinion of himself. So when they're talking about a rich young man, yes, he may have had money. But what he had more of was he, this grand opinion of himself, all these things that he possessed, all these possessions that he ascribed to himself that he did not possess. Do you see how that is the real wealth that we're talking about? That kind of richness, rich in possessions, rich in the things that we ascribe to ourselves that we do not possess, rich in illusion, rich in pictures, rich in pride, rich in vanity. Negative emotions distort things. Truth destroys negative emotions. But negative emotions imitate the truth by leaving things out, by using half-truths, by adding or just connecting things wrongly. All, you ever notice if you're telling a story and you want to make yourself look a little better? Of course, you never do this consciously. But if you're telling a story and you want to make yourself a little better, look a little better, you just tell things in a slightly different way. You just change the order. Well, this happened and then that happened. That's all you have to do is just change the order. And all of a sudden, you look like the slighted person. You look like the good guy, and somebody else looks like the bad guy. Well, you're smiling, so I imagine you did, and you're nodding your head. So I'm getting that you do actually recognize that you have done this. This is a good thing. For you people out there in podcast land who are not nodding and saying, yes, I've done that, well, keep observing. A negative person always lies, always steals. Take two negative people and put them together, and what you will get is a cat fight. You will find two people spewing the most fantastic lies at each other, making the most outrageous accusations, and slinging the most unimaginable mud at one another. And it's all due to the big lie factory in the negative part of the emotional center. Yes, there's a big lie factory in the, in the negative part of the emotional center. And all it does is just pump out lies 24-7. And so there's never a shortage of lies when we're negative. Never. And when we're negative, we never can tell the lie from the truth. 
All we can see is the lie, because negative emotions distort the truth and everything else. In a sense, this lie factory, the negative part of the emotional center, it's really our own internal hell, where hate, violence, and destruction reign supreme. When you're wronged, when you are filled with righteous indignation, when someone has done you wrong, tell me that hate, violence, and destruction don't reign supreme, and I'll tell you that you're full of balloon juice. And for those of you who don't know what balloon juice is, you blow up a balloon, you fill it with hot air. So balloon juice is hot air. And if you think that you, when you're negative, are not filled with hate, violence, and destruction, you don't know yourself. Ospensky said, the world is not controlled by sex or power, but by negative emotions. The grand theft is ascribing to ourselves the power of doing, the possession of one permanent I. We ascribe to ourselves the possession of one permanent I, real I. We also, this is another one, we, we, we ascribe to ourselves real will. We think that we can will to do something, never realizing that because we're not one, we, we can't possibly have one will. We have as many wills as we have eyes, and we don't even know how many eyes we have. I mean, there are people who've been observing themselves effectively, properly, for 10, 15 years, and still don't know how many eyes they have, probably because they're smart enough not to count them. We ascribe the power to change ourselves if we wish. Well, I could change that if I wanted to. I could quit smoking any time I want. Well, I can quit drinking any time I want. Well, as Mark Twain said, it's easy to quit smoking. I've done it a hundred times. And finally, the thing that we ascribe to ourselves that really puts us in a bind is self-knowledge. We think we know ourselves. I remember one time talking to Dr. Thompson. He said, the older I get, the less I know myself. Because I said something about, why well, I know myself. I, I, well, I, know, I know myself. I was so cocky. This was <laughs> probably probably 20 years ago. I know myself, and I was so cocky. Now I look back at it, I think, oh boy. <laughs> I'd like to erase that one. So I'm erasing it now. I don't, I don't know myself. And, and I smile at people who do. That's all. I just smile at people who do. Okay, well, good for you. I'm happy to hear it. Self-knowledge. We ascribe to ourselves self-knowledge, and we do not have it. All this self-ascription of powers that we don't possess robs us of the potential transformation into a different order of being. You see, as long as we're ascribing to ourselves what we aren't, we'll never grow into what we aren't. We'll always stay the way we are, imagining that we're something that we aren't. This is that of which we must gradually become aware through self-observation. Otherwise, personality stays active, in essence remains passive, and we perish like brute beasts prepared for destruction. Or Gurdjieff said, that's what the Bible says, brute beast prepared for destruction. But Gurdjieff said, you'll die like a dog. Well, if there's some difference, then explain it to me. A brute beast prepared for destruction or dying like a dog, it's really the same idea, isn't it? It's amazing to me how many of Gurdjieff's ideas I find in esoteric writings. And I think, well, geez, Gurdjieff wasn't even alive when they wrote that. Maybe Gurdjieff got those esoteric ideas from sea influence and didn't invent them all himself, as some people think, or seem to think. I don't know if they really think that, but I think sometimes we get into this personality worship thing where you think, oh, this man was a great man. And, and I think we, we don't realize that what, the, what made the man great was the ideas that he entertained. Not the man, but the ideas that he entertained. And I think the man himself would be the first one to point out. Rex was saying the other day, somebody came to Jesus. They said, oh, good teacher. And he said, why do you call me good? There's none good except the one God. There it is. You know, that's exactly it. We ascribe goodness to people, and the really good people, they say, well, don't call me good. I'm not good. There's really only one good. It's the source of these ideas that's good. It's the source of good ideas that's good. Everything else is just the vessel of those ideas, and a vessel is just a vessel. It's what's inside the vessel that's important. The vessel itself is not important. It's what that vessel can hold 
That's the meaning of a vessel. The meaning of a vessel is not, oh, isn't that a beautiful vase? The meaning of a vessel is the hole in it. It's what's not a vessel. You take a cylinder, and if it's just a cylinder and it's a block, it's worthless, unless you want a paperweight or a doorstop. But if you drill a hole in it, now you have something that is useful. Now you can put something into that. It's now a vessel. Basically, we are either blocks or vessels. We're either blocking our own light or we are being filled up with better ideas and starting to create some light, starting to shine some light. That was an unplanned digression. Actually, most of this is unplanned, so I hope it's not a digression. The first phase of this work is becoming gradually conscious of the part that pride, vanity, buffers, and deep sleep play in our ordinary thinking and behavior. We are so unaware of ourselves. It's amazing to me. People who could be so self-conscious and so self-centered could be so unconscious and so unaware of ourselves. It's because we're so self-conscious, and when I say self-conscious, I mean imaginary I self-conscious. Aware of ourselves, I mean aware of imaginary I, which isn't really aware, but it's more like, well, that's who I think I am. But it's not really aware as much as that's who I think I am. Do you remember the little story I told you about the two fish swimming in, in the pond and the little fish turns to the big fish and says, Mommy, what, what's water? And that's like us. We are so in it. We are in, so in imaginary, so in false personality that we don't know what it is. And it's the purpose, the first phase of this work, is becoming gradually aware of that, becoming gradually conscious of that. This is called awakening. And we must do it before we can do anything else. You know, in this work, it talks about you have to wake up, then you have to die to yourself, and then you have to be reborn. In other words... You have to wake up to your false personality. Then your false personality has to die. And then your essence is born. And you, your real eye is, is reborn. So what does that mean? Well, it was born before, but now it's reborn. In other words, it comes back into your consciousness and you become that. You, you put your sense of I in that. And that's being reborn. And there's probably a lot more to it than that. I don't know everything, but that's the general theory and the general teaching. But we must first observe ourselves practically to see what we're like, apart from our overblown imagination of our darling, precious, wonderful self. And if it's not such a darling, precious, wonderful self, then why do we constantly defend it as if the entire world were dependent upon the outcome of our defense? As if our very survival itself was dependent upon how someone saw us and that someone knows that we were right and we were not wrong in that situation that we were justified in doing the stupid thing that we did. The energy that we put in that is amazing. We've got to observe that practically. Gurdjie said, man, as he thinks he is, thinks he knows himself and understands himself. <laughs> no greater illusion could exist. I like the way he put things. No greater illusion could exist. Of course, we're all thinking, well, let's see if I can think of a greater illusion. <laughs> then Ospensky said, begin with one thing. Observe it in yourself, like pretending that you know. This is one of the worst forms of lying, which, of course, is theft. This is grand theft, pretending that you know something that you don't know. Now, let's just think about you having a conversation with somebody. Someone's talking to you, and they say something. You don't really understand them, but you nod and say, mm-hmm, yeah, you pretend you know. Remember when we were down in Guatemala learning Spanish, and people would talk to us, and we'd go, oh, yeah, yeah, and we'd, like, we'd pretend we knew what they were saying. We didn't have a clue. Remember that? It's so we were just too embarrassed to admit that we could not understand what they were talking about. And, of course, we justified it by saying, well, I don't want to be a burden on that person, make him slow down and repeat himself over and over again. If I listen long enough, sooner or later, I'll get what he's saying. Wasn't that it? Isn't that how you did it? Yeah, that's how I did it, too. And it's a lie. 
It was a lie, but I didn't call it a lie. I dressed it up and made it this wonderful, noble virtue that I was being so magnanimous and thoughtful about this other person so I didn't make them go back over and over and over and over and over again or that I didn't want to irritate them. Well, why didn't I want to irritate them? It was all pride and vanity. It was all pride and vanity. It was all pride and vanity. Do you mean it was all pride and vanity? Yes, it was all pride and vanity. Oh, no, but maybe you had a little bit of feeling for the person. No, it was all pride and vanity. It was all about me. And I pretended that it was about them. That was another lie. I pretended that it was about them. It's a horrible thing to have to admit, but it's a wonderful thing to be able to admit. I could sit here and say, yes, I did that. Not only that, I'll do it again. The next time somebody's explaining something to me I don't understand, I'll probably say, uh-huh. Oh, yeah, uh-huh. So I have been practicing with this. I've been practicing. So Connie will say, well, you know, blah, 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 blah. No, I don't. I mean, if I don't, I honestly say, no, I don't. I don't know it. You remember? No, I don't. It could be annoying to her. I don't know. I haven't asked her. But it's what I'm going to do. I'm going to tell the truth. It's hard. It's hard to even remember to tell the truth because I'm such a congenital liar. Congenital, you know what congenital is? Like a congenital birth defect. It's like something you inherited, something you were born with. I'm a congenital liar. I've been lying since I could talk. Because every time we say I, we're lying. How many times do I say I? How about two? Too many. It's funny, this uh, lady in uh, Great Britain who's been writing and who asked for the PayPal thing, she mentioned something in one of her last emails about what we share in the podcast, that it's hard, that it can be very difficult for people. And I don't see it. You know, I mean, I see it when she says it. But as I'm doing this, I don't see this as hard I don't see it as, you know, me being obnoxious or me being, you know, hard or me having an edge. I just see it as, well, this is the way it is. And the false personality doesn't like anything that smacks of the truth. Nothing at all. And when it starts being pleasurable for you, it's because you've stopped allowing the truth in. And you've started to deflect it and put it on someone else. You've started to say, yeah, he's like that. Yeah, she's like that. Oh, I know somebody just like that. Because you, you, you're enjoying that. But when, when you're not enjoying it, you're seeing yourself, usually. <laughs> well, <laughs> so there you go. It's called useful suffering. You see it in yourself. But useless suffering is when you see it in somebody else. Do you suffer from that? Oh, yes, you suffer. But it's useless. It won't give you anything. But you suffer. Well, how can I suffer? I'm enjoying it. Well, you suffer because every time that you put that person down, you've really put yourself down. Every time you've separated yourself from that person by judging them, you've really cooked up the soup that you're going to stew in. Well... It's difficult for us to see that we follow and are slaves to lifelong ideas. It's so hard to see. We just think this is the way life is. We don't think we're slaves to lifelong ideas. We think, well, this is the way life is. This is the way it works. Here begins inner sincerity. Without inner sincerity, doing the work is impossible. We've got to start to see that we follow and are slaves to lifelong ideas and attitudes. We've got to see that. And when we see that, we'll begin to develop inner sincerity. And then we'll begin to do the work. That's what makes it possible. Thou shalt not steal means esoterically, internally. Don't ascribe to yourself psychologically what you don't possess. You're stealing powers that don't belong to you. Don't take credit for things you didn't do. That's stealing from someone else. And what's worse is a stealing from yourself because you're stunting your own ability to develop. Observe yourself and see what goes on inside and to what you consent but won't express because of the consequences. Think of the negative emotions that you consent to about other people, but you won't express them. Laura, you talked about this a couple weeks ago. I don't verbally express negative emotions, so I think I don't express negative emotions. But you consent to them internally. And when you consent to them internally, think about that. You won't express them because of the consequences. Well, if I express them, people think I'm a bad person. That will destroy my reputation. That will tarnish my darling, precious self. Fear of loss of position. 
fear of loss of money, fear of loss of reputation, fear of the loss of being thought well of. People won't think I'm a wonderful person if I express that, so I just keep it inside. I just enjoy an indoor movie. There's only one remedy to overcome false personality. Get to know yourself by long, sincere self-observation. That's the only way. Jess and I were, (laughs) was it Thursday? Thursday, we were going somewhere together, and I had him trapped in my car so he couldn't go anywhere, and we were talking about something, and he was getting annoyed at something he saw in himself, and he was getting annoyed. And he said, okay, that's enough of that. (laughs) And I don't blame him. You know, it's like, I know exactly how that feels. You you look at something in yourself, okay, that's enough of that. I've had enough of that. I need a breather. It's kind of like somebody's removing a splinter from your finger with with a needle. You know, you can just kind of go so far and then you find yourself sinking down in your chair, you know, and uh, trying to get away, but you're trying to hold your hand there, but you're trying to get away at the same time. And you go, okay, okay, stop for a minute. Just let me get my breath. That's how self-observation can be. You start to see something about yourself when you're totally identified with it. It's so difficult to look at it because you're identified. Well, if you're identified, you're identified. Then just say, well, this is what it's like to be identified with this. This is what it's like to think that I'm the one, think that I am that thing. This is what it's like. This is what it feels like. And then now you have an idea of why you don't really want to identify, because that's what it feels like. If you still cling to the idea that you're a good person, you've got some work to do. You've got to evaporate this imagination by the light of consciousness. And the only way to get that happening is the light of consciousness has to be administered through proper non-identified self-observation. So that's the medicine you need to take. You need to administer this medicine, the light of consciousness, through proper non-identified self-observation. If you sincerely observe yourself in the light of this work, these work ideas, and when I say this work, I mean these work ideas, these esoteric ideas that don't belong to the fourth way, that belong to humanity, that belong to the universe, that belong to no one and everyone, you'll soon begin to know what grand theft really means and is how we live our lives. Often the practical application of these ideas sounds like it's going to be easy. The ideas sound great. When we actually run into a situation or a person who's being a little more difficult than we'd like, we find it's not as easy as we thought it was going to be. If you've hit a snag with some aspect of this work and its practical application in your everyday life, I invite you to write James at solidrockvista.com. Sometimes a fresh perspective is all it takes to get us back on the right track.